0: You are listening to the Mercy View podcast. Mercy View exists to be a gospel-centered family of missional disciples to the glory of God and for the city's good. For more information about Mercy View, please visit our website at mercyview.com. Now, let's taste and see that the Lord is good. Matthew 9. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the Harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, Mercy View. Yeah, uh, it's exciting to be here this evening. How are we doing tonight? Doing good. Yeah. Uh, my name's Trey, um, and I'm excited uh, to get the opportunity to speak again uh, this week. Um, always excited, but extra excited this week because it is Church Planning Sunday. Got my Church Planning cost uh, play on right now, um, and. Uh, Ready, ready to go. Um, but one of the reasons I'm so excited, it's not just because I get an opportunity to uh, get up here and, and preach, uh, even though that's exciting. Um, it's because uh, today's Church Planting Sunday, and I am an aspiring church planner. And, uh, for the last four years, I don't know if you know this, but my family and I have been uh, at Mercy View because we feel like God's calling us to go somewhere at some point in time to plant a church. And so we've been uh, intentionally for the last four years training for that. Um, And uh, before we came to Mercy View, I was on staff full-time at a church, and and now in my day job as I work uh, in the marketplace with folks, uh, I have conversations often, and they ask me, hey, what did you do before you came to the company you're at now? And I'll tell them, well, I was a youth pastor, and the conversation always goes to, well, why aren't you doing that anymore? It's like, well, I'm doing a church planning residency, which is always, I mean, always, whether it's a Christian that I'm talking to or someone who is... uh, not a believer, they're like, church planting, cool. Because they have no idea what I mean. (laughs) It's like, what is that? Like you like sprinkling like church seeds over a city and Bob Ross Chia Head like pops up, boom, there's a church. Um, No, they they don't understand what it is, rightly so. It's a fair question. What does it mean to plant a church? What are we talking about? Why are we talking today um, and going to dedicate our time to trying to understand and and focus around church planning. Um, And it's because we we use this word planning as a metaphor. It is something we use to describe a person or group of people who want to go to a specific city, town, or region with the express purpose of starting a gospel-centered, disciple-making, missional living church for God's glory and for their neighbor's good. And the reason that we call it planting, the reason we say that we want to plant churches is because we believe it's God's desire for us as believers to plant our feet in the ground and to grow deep roots in communities that he would call us to. But we're embedding ourselves into the life of a community. We're we're putting our lives here and we're doing what God has told his people in exile to do ever since the, the people of Israel first went into exile into Babylon. If you look at Jeremiah 29, you'll see that he's writing this letter to the exiles in Babylon, and and they're going, and they have some false prophets coming, and they're telling them, hey, um, don't get comfortable, like, God's going to take us back to Israel soon. And and Jeremiah, um, through the Holy Spirit, writes to them and says, hey, actually, it's the exact opposite. Like, God's intent for his people who live in exile is for them to build homes and live in them, to plant gardens and eat the produce, to multiply and not decrease, and to seek the good of the city where he sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For it's in the city's good that you find your good as well. And so we as believers, we, we are described by Peter in 1 Peter as elect exiles, as those God has chosen and brought out of the world into his kingdom And because we are citizens of his kingdom, we live in this world as exiles, as strangers, as aliens. And so what we do, what we're doing right now, we're planning these little outposts, these embassies of the kingdom of God amongst the kingdom of man. So that we can see God's glory spread across the world until he comes back and rules and reigns in glory. That's why Mercy View exists. We were planted in Tulsa 11 years ago for that purpose, to that end. Um, And today, what we want to do with other churches across the nation, across the world, who are part of Acts 29, is we want to look at what it means for us to pursue that same effort here in Tulsa, around the country, and around the world, because there's 7.9 billion people on this planet And if everybody who claims to be a Christian says they're a Christian, there's only 2.4 billion of us. So we're 5 billion people who don't know Jesus in the world. Any way you slice it, there's 5 billion people on the planet that don't know Jesus who said about himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father, nobody finds life, nobody finds hope apart from me. And so as we think about planning churches, we're thinking about taking the gospel to every corner of the world. To people who are harassed and helpless, who, as Jesus said, are like sheep without a shepherd. And so as we consider that today, and as we think about church planning specifically, we're going to unpack these few verses from Matthew chapter 9. And what I want us to see as we do that is I I want us to see that Jesus here gives us a picture of what it is that motivates him in his ministry here on earth, and therefore what should motivate us, right? We want to be motivated, we want to be moved by the things that moves Jesus. And then from that motivation, there's two things that he would call us to do. Um, One, to look up and see, and the second thing would be to pray. And so let's do that together. Let's look back at verses 35 through 36. What is it that moves Jesus? What motivates Jesus? Read in verse 35 that as Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So, what Matthew's doing for us here is he's painting this picture of what I think we could safely assume is just a concise summary of Jesus' mode of ministry here on earth. He would go from city to city, he would go to village to village, and he would go to the public place in Judea. He would go to the synagogue, and he would begin to teach, and he would point to uh, himself, and he would point to the fact that he had come to call people to repentance. And as he's doing this, you can read throughout the Gospels all of these instances where he'll go into these places and all of a sudden crowds will start to follow him and he'll get out on mountains, he'll get out on a boat and there's crowds of people. And Matthew's wanting to show us that as Jesus saw these crowds coming to him, what he saw was people who were lost, people who needed someone to point them to the way. They were harassed, they were helpless. And Matthew says that he has compassion if you want to drill down into what he means by that word compassion, what he's trying to get at is, is Jesus in his his very being, in his gut, when he saw these people who were lost and afraid, who were hopeless, there was this feeling down in his guts that just kind of gnawed at him. And The kind of compassion he's talking about is not just, oh, he felt pity, oh, he felt sorry for them, but it's it's there's something in him that says, man, there is a problem that these people have. And I have the solution, and I need to do something about it. He was moved. He was motivated by compassion. I remember when I was about five or six years old, I I could read. I'm not sure exactly how old I was, but my family took a trip to Pensacola, Florida. Um, I grew up in a town of about 10,000 people. Um, There was less than 30,000 people in the entire county I grew up in. And so something that I had no point of reference for at such a young age was homelessness. Like, my five-year-old, she, she sees homeless folks every day. Like, seriously, every day, every corner that we stop at in Tulsa, she, she has a frame of reference for it. But when I was her age, I didn't. And we're in Pensacola for the very first time, and uh, we're driving to dinner, and I remember that I had been complaining about how hungry I was and how much I just wanted to get food, and my parents, which, I mean, Lord have mercy on them, because uh, if it's as whiny as my five-year-old is sometimes, like, man, I need to apologize, like, after I get done tonight. <laughs> right? Um, We were headed to get food and we stop at a red light and I look out of the window and I see a guy and and we've all seen someone like this. He's dirty. He looks despondent and just down and hopeless and he's holding the sign. And I remember the sign said he was hungry and didn't have any money and he wanted some food. And I asked my parents, hey, what's up with this? And in the time it took to be stopped at a red light, my parents just kind of gave me a brief like synopsis of what homelessness was. And the light turns green and we start driving. And my five-year-old self, I go, where are we going? And my dad says, dude, I thought you were hungry. And my mom said, I said this, I don't remember exactly what I said, my mom says that what I responded with was, yeah, well, there's some things more important than food. And so we turned around, we went back to this stoplight, we gave this dude a box of Fig Newtons, because my dad was a diabetic and that's what he ate when his sugar got low, and like five bucks to go get a hamburger. And we did that because as a five-year-old, there was something inside of me that said, this guy standing on the corner, he's hopeless and he's helpless and he needs something. And dude, we got snacks right here. That's exactly what Jesus felt as he would see these folks coming to him. It's the same thing that he's wanting to get the disciples. He's wanting to get us to see tonight. He's wanting us to be moved with compassion toward people. And so let's think as if we were Jesus for a moment. Like, if you could raise the dead, heal the sick, or bring a broken relationship back from the pieces it's been shattered into? If, if, if you could stop a storm before it ever got started, spawn some tornadoes, and like took out a trailer park, like you would do it. Like what if you had all the power, and you're also filled with all the love and mercy for others, that to see their suffering, you not only felt the pull to do something, but you could actually do it. And Jesus did. Like, as God in the flesh, He had all of that. And what Matthew is describing here for us is the utter depths of Jesus' heart for people. And so, as they're on a hillside and they have no food, He finds a kid who has a little sack lunch and He feeds thousands of people with it. Like, they're sick and He heals them. They're lame and so He gives strength back to their legs. They're blind so He opens their eyes. Like, they're oppressed so He cast out demons. And beyond all that, they're sinful and they're wicked. And so even when friends come and bust a hole in a roof and they drop a man who can't walk on a bed down in front of Jesus, the first thing he says to him, is son, your sins are forgiven. Because that's what he needed. Yeah, sure, he needed to walk and Jesus let him do that. But if he hadn't, his sins were forgiven and Jesus met that need. Every step he took, every word he spoke in his ministry, it was motivated by compassion that he felt for people who he came to save, who were harassed and helpless. So we think about our own lives today, like there's no way that every need that we see that we can meet 100 percent Like sickness, loneliness, hunger, death, like sin, like we know that we don't have what Jesus had. He, he was God in the flesh. But there's this tension that exists here for us as believers because on the one hand, we know that we don't have it within us to meet these needs, but on the other hand, we know that we actually have Him. More than that, Jesus said when He left that He was sending the Holy Spirit and that having the Spirit was actually better than having Him here next to you. that we have Jesus. And I know that sounds a little cliche, like especially if we're talking to a lost world, but like, we know that the person dying from cancer, or, like the homeless man on the street corner that's not in his right mind, like what they need more than anything is not just for the pain to go away. Like if, if the pain just goes away, it'll eventually come back. What they need is to know the one who came and lived and died for them. Like, that's the only way out of their hopelessness. That's the only way out of their despair. And that's what Jesus wants us to see. That's what Jesus wants the disciples to see. And I just wonder if we believe it's true. Like, what would happen if we believed that it was true, that the thing that the people in our city need the most is Jesus? Like, what happens at 61st in Peoria, half a mile from my house, hear gunshots probably three or four times a week. Like what happens to all the crime and the violence if somebody believes that Jesus is what is needed at the corner of that street and people start to come to know Jesus? It changes stuff. It changes things. If we can get compassion for folks that are lost and hurting, it changes things. Like what happens to the homeless crisis in our city? Like I said, my five-year-old has a context for it. You guys have a context for it. What happens if we start to see people with the compassion of Jesus as lost and helpless, as sheep without a shepherd, that need the shepherd of the sheep? And we partner with ministries like City of Hope that's right now doing amazing work to help meet needs but also share the gospel with folks. And what if every small town that's suffering from jobs leaving and drugs pouring in, people that are full of just desperation and hopelessness, what would happen if we had eyes of compassion to see what Jesus sees, to see the gospel take root in places like this? And, and, and what we see Jesus say to his disciples and what I think we've got to see tonight as he takes in all the brokenness of the world that he came to say is, is that there's something that can be done We just gotta look up and see it. Verse 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers, the workers are few. What Jesus says here, it's a metaphor he uses a few other times. Um, We see it in the gospels, we see it in Matthew, we see it in Luke, we see it in John. And in John, he adds a little bit something different to it that I think is really helpful for us. He says, do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. The fields are white or the fields are ripe. They're ready for the harvest. And Jesus is making this point. He's saying, since the day that he came, there have been people that God has been calling to himself that are waiting on someone to go and tell them about him. As Jesus ministers to the crowds and his heart swells with compassion, and what he wants is for his disciples to feel that same motivation. What he wants is for us to feel that motivation. And if he can just get us to lift our eyes up and see, he knows that our hearts are going to swell with compassion too. And so Jesus was moving them. He's moving us toward seeing cities and towns filled with people who are broken and lost people who are confused about who they are about what hope life has to offer who are desperate for some kind of joy something to fill the emptiness of their lives and apart from him what he knows is we're just constantly going to be spinning our wheels trying to find it, never being able to actually do so. And I can imagine, like, this isn't in the text, like, this is some sanctified imagination that we gotta use here, but as Jesus looks at these crowds in Matthew 9, and as he thinks about the people in the village in John chapter 4, that the woman at the well is running back to tell about all the things that Jesus has said to her. Like, what he's trying to do right here is clue the disciples in on something, Like that in his earthly ministry, he knows that with all the power that he has, he's confined to space and time. And there are crowds of people around the world at this time and throughout history who need to hear and know that Jesus came for them. And we know today that God is calling people from every tribe, tongue, people group on the planet. And what that means is that God has chosen He's chosen to see the gospel spread not through Jesus being the one who is physically here doing it, but he uses another means. And the case we want to make tonight is that the means that God has chosen to use primarily for taking the gospel to lost people is the church. And we want to see the church spread around the world. We want to see churches planted because God's means For having the gospel take root around the world is the church of Jesus Christ. It's his people who have their eyes lifted up and can see the same brokenness and the same harassment and helplessness and lostness that Jesus sees here in the text. And so he says, lift up your eyes. See, the harvest is plentiful. It's there. The Father has sent the Spirit to prepare the hearts of people the world over. But, there's like a big but right here. It says the laborers, the workers, the people who are actually there doing it, they're few. They're few. And by the day, they're getting fewer. Now, did you know in the U.S. last year, just in the U.S., Barnard Research Group says that 38% of pastors have considered throwing in the towel. But just in 2021, like that's not like over the last few years. That's data just from last year. 38% of pastors have thought about throwing in the towel. They've become so weary and so burdened and so burned out that they've thought, you know what, this just isn't worth it anymore. Maybe I need to do something else. And there's a myriad of reasons for this, like... I mean, the last two years of ministry, even for healthy churches going into the pandemic, like they have been rough. Like it has not been easy. And there's also a sense in which like the Lord is the true shepherd of the sheep. Like he's sifting some stuff. Like he's, he's rooting out some men who aren't actually called and qualified and he's getting them out of there. We take all of that aside. There's 38% of pastors who feel like, you know what? I thought God had called me to do this, but I just don't know that it's worth it. And part of the reason that the laborers are so few is because it's hard work, and another part of it is, especially here in the U.S., we've, as believers, not pastors, we've kind of abdicated our responsibility to be workers in the field too. That we mow a guy, we, we pay a guy to mow our grass, and we also think that we should probably just pay someone to go and you know do the work of harvest for ministry. And I just let's pay the professionals. And what Jesus is calling each of us to, as believers, as disciples, is to have eyes for the harvest. So let me ask you tonight, have you lifted up your eyes? Like, we're not all called to be church planners. We're not all called to be pastors. We're not all called to be in any, some kind of leadership. But every one of us, as believers, we are called as disciples of Jesus to have our eyes lifted up and see that the harvest is ready that we're called to be moved and motivated to see people who are lost and hurting come to know the one who loves them and who wants to bring them out of darkness and into life. And so if you lifted up your eyes to see the harvest, now trust me, the enemy of your soul does not want you to do that. He's gonna work every step of the way to thwart God's plan of seeing churches take the gospel around the world. He's going to do that in a few ways, but the main way he's going to do it for you and I, he's just going to try to distract us. Like Ryan said it at the top, like we are just so distracted as people. Listen, the thing that is most likely to stop you from living on mission, with eyes for the harvest in 2022, it's not persecution, not here in the West. It's not a lack of resources. It's not that people just don't want to hear what you have to say. Like the reason that you're not going to have eyes to see the harvest is because the enemy is a master at getting you distracted. He doesn't need to throw you in prison. He doesn't need to feed you to lions. He doesn't need to run you out of town to keep you from being on mission. He just needs to distract you. And he's put a great tool in your hands, in your pocket right now. Like he's got all of us. Matt Chandler, a pastor in Dallas, he has a really good way of putting this. He he says that the enemy likes to use things like this as little pacifiers to keep us from seeing the mission of God. Like your cell phone right now is a pacifier that the enemy has for you. The Holy Spirit wants to stir your heart for mission and the enemy's just like, shh, shh, shh. Like you don't want any of that. Like, hey, listen, ding. Netflix just released a new trailer for Stranger Things season four. Like you need to go binge watch seasons one through three so you can be ready. Right? Like right now, like, just, oh man, you got all sorts of red dots on your Instagram. Like, let me scroll that, find out what's going on. Like maybe you're just a little too sanctified to be taking a look at that in church. Maybe, maybe that's not what you're doing right now, but because we've been so conditioned to not be able to go 40 minutes without actually getting a hit like from this little dopamine receptor in our pocket that... You're a little bit too self-righteous to go and check Instagram, but you refreshed your work email about 10 minutes ago. And there's something on your mind right now that doesn't need to be there because it can wait for tomorrow. And what the enemy wants to do is he wants to get you distracted with all of these things. Now, you think technology isn't your thing. Well, let me tell you, the middle-class life that you've built for yourself, like the enemy's using that as the peak opportunity. To get you distracted and your eyes off of the mission and off of Jesus and onto yourself. He keeps giving you better stuff, letting you see more opportunities to get your kids put in new sports or new activities. Like that new brewery just opened up, they got a sweet IPA on tap. And it matters because, or sorry, I skipped a note. <laughs> it doesn't matter. All these things are good things, right? There are things that can actually, in many ways, honor God. But like there is some sense in which God, in his common grace, because we live in a broken world, he's given us some things to kind of distract us a little bit in good ways. But what happens is the enemy takes that and he, he lets us run with it. And it numbs us to the realities of what's happening around us. And so instead of seeing with eyes of compassion, we just get sucked into the next thing, to the next thing. you wonder, why does it matter? Why does it matter if I have eyes to see the harvest? Here's where I was going. It matters because every disciple of Jesus is called to compassion. We're called to vision, and we're called to participation in the mission of God. That doesn't mean you're going to plant a church. I said that a minute ago. It doesn't mean you're going to join the church staff. But what it could mean is that if God gives you eyes to see the vision, it could mean that you're willing to pack it up and move somewhere that's an hour and a half from a target, just so you can be a part of a core plant team, somewhere that God wants to do something. Whatever it might mean for you, there's one thing for sure that it means for all of us. If we're gonna obey Jesus, we gotta start here. We gotta press past the distractions. And we gotta do what he says here in verse 38. We we have got to pray We've got to pray for God to send out laborers into the harvest. He says there in verse 38, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And I've spent the last 20 minutes making the case that Jesus is calling us to this gut level. I've got to do something kind of compassion for people. And then we've got to push away the distractions so that we can see the depth of, of the needs and be motivated by that vision. And now we look at what Jesus says that we're supposed to do. And he doesn't start with go, he starts with pray. And this is hard for us because Jesus' disciples then and his disciples now, we are really not predisposed to that kind of temperament. Like he just told us there was like some big need and we're predisposed to wanna go do something. I mean, he he picks people like this, right? I mean, Andrew and John are walking with Jesus down the road and like some guys come and curse him. And he's like, hey, Jesus, you want to give us the power to like call down fire on their heads so that like consumes them? Impulsive, action-oriented. They want to get something done. And Peter's like super easy to pick on here, right? Like, I mean, you know, there's that one time that he slices a dude's ear off. Like they're literally at a prayer meeting and like they come to arrest Jesus and dude literally whips out a sword and slices off somebody's ear when he's supposed to be praying. (laughs) Jesus here, though, he doesn't start with go. He doesn't start with action. He's gonna get there. Like the next chapter, he gets there. He sends the 12 out. Matthew 28, he sends all of us out on mission in the Great Commission. Here, though, He says, I want you to have eyes to see the depth of the need. I want you to look and see that the harvest is plentiful and there's not enough people there. And then I want you to pray. Pray earnestly for God to send out laborers. And as easy as it sounds, I think it's really difficult for us because culturally we are not inclined toward prayer. We're inclined toward action and activism. Like, we see a need and we want to provide some kind of measurable, quantifiable action with equally quantifiable uh, outcomes, and Jesus says the exact opposite of that. He says, pray. Like, prayer is not measurable. Like, outside of your time, there is nothing you can spreadsheet. There is no chart that you can give. You don't know how effective it's being. And Jesus says, pray. The need is great. Pray. And the reason that Jesus calls us to prayer first is because he knows our predisposition and he wants his followers predisposed as we are to self-sufficiency, to start with dependence. There is no missional effort that can ever be undertaken that can be sustained without utter dependence on the power and work of the spirit. And prayer, it forces this mode of dependence on us. Prayer births patience in us. It cultivates obedience. So the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. And so what do we do when we're motivated and moved by compassion? We lift up our eyes and we see the harvest. We pray earnestly. So there's two big ways I think we could start praying this evening, even just as our church. Like it's not just our church doing this. Like we got churches all over the country right now participating in Church Planning Sunday that are praying this way. But there's two things I think we could do that if we would pray this way, I think we would see God do some awesome stuff here in our city, in our country, and around the world. First, we need to pray exactly how Jesus says to pray here. We need to pray earnestly that God would raise up men and women, laborers who would get a vision for the harvest and be motivated by compassion, and that they would go. And a byproduct of that is going to be, like as you pray for people to be motivated by compassion to go, the Lord's going to work in your heart, and he might call you to go too. But he might stir you to do something outside of the box, outside of what you would plan. For some of you, that's gonna mean that you end up going and being a part of a core team somewhere on a church plant. Some of you, God might call to actually go and plant a church. Others, as you start praying for God to send out laborers into the harvest field, what's gonna happen is you're gonna start to be really intentional with your neighbors because you got eyes to see them the way that Jesus sees them. For others of you, it's going to be that you you actually, you stay here in Tulsa, but maybe the Lord just kind of drops in your heart that there's a neighborhood here that needs a gospel presence and witness, and you just pack up your family and you move there. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not a decision that's made based on how much the house prices are and how much money you're going to make on your investment. Second thing, I think it, it only makes sense then as we pray for God to do a gospel work. We also pray for those who are right now laboring In the harvest field, that God would sustain their labor because a third of them, according to the data, are thinking about throwing in the towel. Specifically, we need to pray for those pastors and planters who are already at work and they're coming up against serious opposition from the enemy. We need to pray for them to be strengthened. We need to pray for them to be encouraged. We need to pray that they wouldn't put their hand to the plow and look back, but that they would press on toward the call that God has put on their lives. And so we need to pray for church plants like our friends in Stillwater at Redeemer Stillwater with Brian Paget and his staff there. We need to pray that God would sustain them. We need to pray for our friends in Joplin, Missouri at Rooted Church, Joplin. Rodney Rambo and the folks there, they're, they're doing amazing work. And we, we need to pray that God would continue to sustain them. And actually, uh, Rodney sent us a video uh, kind of updating us a little bit on what's happening there in Joplin. And uh, here, just for the next couple minutes, we're gonna uh, look at that. We're gonna see what it is that God's doing there, how we can pray for them together as a church. And then I'm gonna wrap us up tonight and uh, we'll we'll close out. Why are we, um, as a part of Acts 29, highlighting church planning today? It's because the story's like that. Because the story's like, Uh, Rodney's and like those in Stillwater of of people going into places where uh, the gospel needs to take deep root into the midst of suffering and hardship and pain that the Lord's bringing life the good things that happen are always birthed out of the mess of what it means to do this Christian life together and God wants to call people into that from around the world We're talking about church planning today because as a network, we believe that the call to make disciples is answered most effectively through gospel-centered churches. Therefore, God's primary mission strategy is to see these churches planted. It's through planning new gospel-centered churches that the light of the gospel is able to push back against the darkness. So as we consider Matthew 9 and the great call that Jesus has for us, and the breadth and, and, and the depth of the ministry um, and the opportunity that's in front of us. And there's three ways that we can participate in church planting. It's the same thing we just saw in reverse. You can participate in church planting by praying earnestly for God to raise up men and women who commit to the work of seeing the gospel planted in communities around the world. You can participate in church planning by intentionally lifting up your eyes to see the harvest. Like As you pray for God to send out laborers, ask the Lord to help you see your neighborhood and your office, your kid's t-ball team, your gym, with the same kind of compassion that Jesus sees each of those places. You might also find that as you start to pray for laborers, the Lord opens your eyes to see a place where he might want you to go and plant a church. Or maybe he calls you to go and be a part of a church plant team. Last thing, you can participate in the church planning in in by allowing your heart to be moved by compassion for the lost, the lonely, the helpless, and the hurting. Open your eyes, your ears, your heart, and listen for the Holy Spirit's prompting to move toward people that need that kind of compassion that Jesus felt for the crowds that followed him. Mercy of you, the the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, let's pray earnestly for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. Would you do that with me now?